And someone else came along and said, better watch what you say up there. Well, we're starting a new study today. We're going to be looking at the book of Ezra for about eight weeks. And if you don't know where Ezra is in the Old Testament, just go back, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. We decided that each week that we're going to give each of you a rock with a special word, a key word from the study that day. If you go back to the Old Testament, they often would build stone memorials when they learn important lessons. So we, as we go through the series, will receive a rock and we'll build our own little tower that, that acknowledges God and, and the things that we're learning from Him. Well, let's pray before we begin. Our Father, what I need you, I need you to speak through me with clarity and with your power. And Father, we as a congregation need you to open our hearts to hear your word and to allow you to apply it to our lives. Oh, Father, we ask God that you would use your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you, if you will, to take a journey with me back in time, over 500 years before Jesus Christ was born. Go back to an area called Babylon or Babylonia, which is a part of the Asian Empire at that time. Babylon was a land of idolatry. Babylon was also the place where Israel was held captive. God had allowed Babylon to conquer Israel because Israel had stopped worshiping him and had turned to idols. He'd warned them. So God used the nation of Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar to come in and take captive the people and move them to Babylon. Isaiah 10, 5 through 7, records this prophecy, which took place, the prophecy was 150 years before. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, and this godless nation here is Israel, to seize loot, to snatch plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the street. But this is not what he intends. His purpose is to destroy and to put to an end many nations. We see in this passage God's sovereignty. God with his invisible hand working in the lives of people, in the lives of nations. And Assyria comes in and, and the king of Assyria had no idea that he's being used by God, and yet God calls that army the rod of my anger as he disciplines Israel. The prophecies also say that after 70 years, after God had completed a discipline for the nation of Israel, that God in turn would discipline Assyria because Assyria was very very evil. There's no doubt that Syria was far more evil 
than the nation of Israel. It was oppressive. It delighted in cruelty. I mean, they probably perfected the art of, of torture. They literally skinned people alive without any kind of sympathy. Witchcraft and magic was endemic. It was so widespread throughout the area. So after 70 years of being in Babylon, God had promised he was going to discipline the nation of, of Israel and then he was going to return them. And the people who were living in Babylon, the nation of Israel, they probably had no idea. They had probably forgotten about the 70 years of discipline. So when the Persian king Cyrus comes in and destroys Assyria, the people, the Jewish people in Babylon probably didn't think a whole lot about this prophecy. They saw nations rise up and nations fall. And they probably figured that the world was controlled by powerful men with their powerful armies. There are these alliances and there was this treaty. And they didn't see God's hand. And yet, when King Nebuchadnezzar's empire fell to Cyrus, they had no awareness that God's invisible hand was working. We've returned to the book of Ezra, very opening verse. We see a very different perspective. We're taken from man's perspective with our distortions and with our limited views. We're taken and we have God's perspective. And when we have God's perspective, we have a much clearer picture of what's going on. It was one year after King Cyrus had defeated the Assyrian Empire that the events of Ezra take place, or begin taking place. The book of Ezra traces many historical events uh, during that time period. We see the return of the exiles. We see them attempting to rebuild the temple. Opposition that they encounter along the way. We see the spiritual compromises that take place among the nation of Israel. See the final completion of the temple, and we see the need for individual and community purity. But throughout the book of Ezra, we see this thing that runs just everywhere, and that's that mystery of God's sovereignty mixed in with man's choice. God's sovereignty, some people like to use the word providence, God's providence, as he works out his plan along with mankind making decisions. Today I want us to look, as we think about God's sovereignty and his providence in the world, to, to remember, yes, that when God disciplined Israel and took them out of Israel into Babylon for 70 years, that was God's sovereignty. But at the same time, as we go through the book of Ezra and we see God working in the hearts of kings and of men to move the, the people, the exiles, back into the promised land, that is that invisible hand of God working sovereignly. In verse 1, we're introduced to, to King Cyrus, the king of Persia, which included present-day Iraq, 
it reached into the, the territories of Israel, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Russia. It was huge. It was huge. And probably to that date, that was the largest world empire that existed. And here's this king, King Cyrus, over this humongous, if you will, empire. And we see in Ezra 1.1 that God was working in his heart. Read with me, Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Notice it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Some versions might say God moved in the heart of King Cyrus. But what he's saying is, is God was influencing, God was affecting the heart of this powerful, powerful king. God stirred up. God moved. We see God's sovereignty here over nations as we see this powerful king being sovereignly influenced by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We see God's prophecy fulfilled in the books of Isaiah and in Jeremiah. We see Cyrus's role in freeing the Jews from Babylonia, which were predicted 150 years before. Isaiah 44, 28 says of Cyrus, He's my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your foundation shall be laid. Later on in Isaiah chapter 45, he says, I will raise up Cyrus. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Written 150 years before Cyrus actually came to power. There are prophecies, as the verse that mentions in Jeremiah also. Jeremiah 25 says, The whole land shall be a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And after 70 years, I will punish the king of Babylon. Jeremiah 29.10 says, When the 10 years are completed, the 70 years are completed, I will bring you back. So we see these prophecies written 150 years before, saying that God would use Cyrus, King Cyrus, King of Persia, to accomplish his will. These passages so clearly are examples of God's sovereignty. Throughout God's word, we see God sovereignly working in nations and in, in, in powerful rulers. If we think back in the nation of Israel and their history, when King Solomon, one of their most loved uh, kings, died, his son Rehoboam was ready to be crowned an a man who was opposed to uh, Solomon, Jeroboam, had been exiled to Egypt. 
But when he heard that Solomon had died, he rushed back to Israel. He met with Rehoboam. He brought with him all his people. And he said, If you are lighten our load, we'll serve you. If you are lighten our load, we won't be opposed to you. And at first, Rehoboam was wise. He went to his father's advisors, the elders of, of Israel. And he said, Jeroboam says that they'll serve under me if I lighten the load. The response of the Jewish, uh, of the, the elders of, uh, of Solomon were, sounds like a great idea. If you're kind, if you lighten the load, they will serve you. And these again were the wise elders that served Solomon. But for some reason, Solomon left these wise elders and went to his friends, much younger. He talked with them. And then he went back to talk with this man, Jeroboam. And these were his words. He says, My father laid a heavy yoke on you. He says, I will add to your yoke. I'll add to it. He went on beyond that. These young advisors gave foolish counsel. And yet, Rehoboam accepted. He embraced it. It resulted in the splitting of the kingdom into the northern tribes, ten northern tribes and the, the two southern tribes. I could continue on and on with stories about this. You say, why would, Jer- why would Rehoboam make such a foolish decision? And ultimately, in God's word, it says he did not listen to the people because it was brought about by God. So, that he might fulfill his word. And over and over in God's word, we see how things happen. And it says it happens because of the state of affairs were put in place by God. God's sovereignty, working in nations and in the kings. Where we see God's invisible hand over nations fulfilling his prophecy. It was time for Israel to go home. And so God stirred up. He moved in the heart of King Cyrus to bring about the return through the proclamation. And he brought it throughout the whole land, through their empire. Now I want us now first to look at, at King Cyrus first and see who he was and see what was going on in his mind as he made this proclamation. Ezra 1, verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now, a secular historian at that point, or even today looking back at history, would probably not see God's providence in this. 
You say, why not? It says that King Cyrus um, really lifted up the Lord there. And he's charged to do this work. But you need to understand the culture there. It's very pluralistic. The mindset there was, there are many ways to God. You ever heard that? There are many ways to God. And each religion gets you to the same God. And there's a mindset that gods were over different locations. King Cyrus was politically correct. And so when he'd go in and take over lands, he didn't do it like Babylon did, or the Syrian people, move people out and oppress them. Cyrus would come in and he would encourage them. He he lifted up their their culture and their religion and he and he said, Let me help you here. And so their written records for King Cyrus made basically the same proclamation to other gods. King Cyrus. His worldview and his political motivation led him to do what he did. But he was not only a great military strategist, he wasn't only a great statesman, he was also a servant of Jehovah. Because God had appointed him to do just what he was doing 150 years before, as written in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Again, Isaiah 44, 28, says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will fulfill my purpose. Isaiah 45, 1 through 6 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed. I want you to stop here and say that this is the only place that I've seen in God's word where he says that a, a pagan king is anointed. But it says it here. The Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to open doors before him. I will go before you and level the exalted places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name for the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. I equip you. Though you don't know me. That people may know that there is none other besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. King Cyrus. God raised him up. I'm reminded of Psalm 139 where it says that God knows our thoughts before we even uh, begin thinking. And before a word is off our lips, he knows it. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. It says in verse 13 and 139 that he created us. He gave us that inward passion. He gave us our outward frames. He even limited the days of our lives. King Cyrus. He's my shepherd. And he shall fulfill my purpose. The Lord says to him, he's my anointed. I'll hold that right hand. 
I'll go before you. I'll level down. I'll break. I'll cut. I'll give. I'll call you by your name. I name you. I equip you. God was in control of Cyrus's life. God is sovereign. That invisible hand working in that mysterious way that we can't understand and comprehend in any way. I just want to stop here and remind each of you God created you. He's our Redeemer. He's called you for a purpose and a reason. He, he made you special. If you fulfill His purpose, He'll go before you. He'll level down problems in a way. He'll open doors for you. He calls you by name. He knows you. Sometimes in the midst of life, we wonder, does anybody know and does anybody care? But God, He calls us by name. Well, God stirred Cyrus's heart. Does He stir our hearts? Has He stirred your heart? Is He stirring my heart? Well, we've seen God's providence in the prophecies fulfilled by King Cyrus. We want to now look at the elements. Cyrus was a king. What were his policies, so to speak? We talked today about the administration of that administration and their policies which affect the nation. King Cyrus gave a proclamation. These were some of his policies. Ezra 3 and 4. Uh, Ezra 1, verses 3 and 4. Whoever is among you, of all his people... May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. We see basically three policies here. First, return to the homeland. Return to the homeland. Whoever among you, of his people, may his God be with you and let him go. Let him go. Cyrus didn't say, I'm commanding all you exiled Jews to return. He says, let him go. Definitely not a command. Make an encouragement to go. It was a decision they had to make. Let him go. The Jews were free to decide. First policy then, return to the homeland. Second is rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. We'll see that's a major theme throughout this book. Rebuilding, why? So that the nation of Israel would return to worshiping the one true God. And third policy was 
provision of resources to rebuild were promised. It says, let every, every, each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, etc. We see God's sovereignty over nations fulfilled in prophecy, fulfilled in King Cyrus's life and his policies as he says, return, rebuild, I'll provide the resources. I'm reminded of Proverbs, at least 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control of kings. When verses 5 through 11, we see God's sovereignty and stirring of the people to respond. We, we see first, first four verses, God's sovereignty working in King Cyrus, in the nation there. And then we see in the verses 5 through 11, God stirring the hearts of people to respond to the proclamation. The Jewish leadership responded with a, a very positive mindset. Verse 5, it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred. There it is again. God is stirring the hearts of people to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold and with goods and livestock and valuable gifts. We see God sovereignly working in the lives of people, stirring them to return. And think about it. If you'd lived in Babylon for 70 years, you might feel comfortable. You heard that Jerusalem was desolate. King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. He moved people out. But there were people that acted in an affirmative way of going back because God has stirred their hearts. These were faith decisions these people made. It required action. First group of people that made a decision to return were the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. Basically, we know the twelve tribes of Israel, and within that were the extended large families, and the, there were the elders over each of these families. It was the tribes of, of Judah and of Benjamin whose leaders said, we'll go back. It's interesting that this decree, this edict, was published all across the, the empire. And we know that there were, were, were Jewish people from the other tribes, but none of their leaders responded. It seems maybe that Judah and Benjamin were the ones who had primary real faith in the, in the God of Israel. Second group is the priests and the Levites. And we know that, that as we study the Old Testament, that they're the ones in charge of the temple. They're the ones in charge of ministering to people, caring for the needs. And the third group was everyone 
everyone whose spirit God had stirred, everyone whose heart God had moved. In reality, when we look at those who returned out of hundreds of thousands, there were 42,300 something who went back. And one could say, why such a small number? Were they comfortable? Had they maybe began making some money? You remember, the Jewish people were primarily farmers in Israel. It was in Babylon that they learned the trades, the marketing skills, the business skills. Maybe they were making money. Maybe they felt comfortable staying where they were. You wonder why none of the heads of, of the other ten tribes chose to go. But we see, though, in all of this, that some moved and some didn't. As we think in our own lives, are we too comfortable? Are we in a lucrative situation where we don't want to follow God? Let's always be open and allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. For we're seeing God's sovereignty in the lives of individuals, not just in the hearts of, of those who were stirred to return. We see that in, in verse 6 that there are others that God stirred to hearts to give, to give resources. It says in verse 6, All who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver and gold and various things. God stirred in the hearts of their neighbors to give. Who were they? They were the remaining Jewish people who didn't go back. They were the Gentiles around. And in chapter 6, verse 4, we see that King Cyrus also gave of his own money to rebuild. What were the resources? We've mentioned them already. Gold, silver, goods, animals, costly wares, and free will offering. I read this and I can't help but think about the initial exodus when Israel was getting ready to leave Egypt. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 12, I believe it was, that God gave the nation of Israel favor. The Jewish people asked them for silver and for gold and for jewelry and for clothes. And what does the Bible say that they did? They gave. They plundered the nation of Egypt. We see again here God sovereignly working in the lives of people to move them as exiles back home and yet moving in the hearts of those staying to give. God always provides where he guides. Years ago, Chris and I were missionaries with inner city impact. We were on a very tight salary. We got a bill. I can't even remember, several hundred. We didn't have money for, to pay that. A friend from Birmingham, Alabama, one of the elders in one of our churches there that support us, came to Chicago of all places for precepts training He called us and said, Ralph and Chris, 
I'm in Chicago. Want some pizza? Or whatever it was. I said, sure. We went, had dinner with him, and we talked about the ministry and the lives of people and God and on and on. We got ready to go after we ate, and we were in the car and saying our goodbyes. Joe, before he left, put an envelope in the window. This is for you. We waited a little while before we opened it. We got away from Joe. Chris quickly opened it up. There's a check for the exact amount. I can't remember. It was a few pennies that weren't in the check. But to the dollar, God provided. God provided. I could tell you over and over stories in my own life beyond that. And you can too. God provides. Where he leads us, he provides. And God was providing for the needs of the Jewish people as they returned to set up the temple and to rebuild it. It's a reminder. God is sovereign. Well, there's a third resource that we see. There's a stirring of King Cyrus to return all the articles, all the relics that were in the, in the, the temple, or for the temple. Not only did Cyrus give this declaration saying, go back, rebuild, I'll provide sources. But it says in verses 7 through 11, and read with me if you will, Cyrus, the king, brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mirath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shishbazar, the prince of Judah, and all of the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, a thousand other vessels, all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And all these were returned for the temple. We see God providing for that rebuilding of the temple, for getting people to return, to rebuild the temple, and now providing all the sources that are necessary for worshiping him because God's purpose is that we would worship him, the one God, the only God. But God didn't just make sure that they returned. He provided for all their needs. We've seen God's sovereignty over and over. As he stirred the hearts of King Cyrus, as he stirred the hearts of some people to return, as he stirred the hearts of some to give, God is in control. He's sovereign. And yet, we have choices. We make real choices. We make decisions that we will be held accountable for. 
What's God stirring in your heart? Has he stirred your heart about youth? Talk with Pastor Robert Rivera here. I'm sure that the doors are open for ministry. Has he stirred your heart for ministry of children? DeVita would love to have helpers in Awana. And Meredith would love to have helpers in Kids in Motion. Maybe God has stirred your heart up for outreach or for missions. Steve and Tony Foster would love to include you in missions and maybe helping you to get involved in a short-term mission. Maybe God is stirring your heart to mend broken relationships. Is there someone that God is saying to you today, you need to work on this? Reach out to the individual. They may push you away. It's okay. Take those small steps. Finally, maybe God is stirring you to pray for our nation. We've seen the nation of Israel, a, a nation chosen by God, a nation who knew all about God, turned away toward idols. Look at our nation today, a nation that's been blessed by God, a nation who has had God's word. And we're moving more and more toward King Cyrus's perspective of any way can get you toward God. Pray for us. Pray for our nation. Job 12, 23 says, He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and He disperses them. Pray that we as a people might turn. That He might stir our hearts to worship Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow down before you. We know that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We acknowledge it now. Father, as the song said earlier, we're prone to wonder, Father. We're, we're so prone to move away from you, to react and respond in wrong ways. Father, stir our hearts. trust you, to follow you, knowing, Father, that as you stir our hearts, that you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.